The lesson for our teaching tonight picks off right where Ron left, picks up right where Ron left off a couple minutes ago in John's first chapter. And again, don't be confused by this. We're, ta- we're looking at and talking about John the Baptist tonight, and it comes in John's gospel. John is the apostle uh, whom Jesus loved, uh, the apostle that's on the inner circle of uh, Jesus' disciples, and he's the one who's recording this history for us, and he's writing about a guy named John the Baptist. We pick up in verse 19 of chapter 1, and here we read, Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Well, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me uh, has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And here ends our lesson. Um, I mentioned earlier that historically the Christian church has moved this time of year from Christmas to Easter through the Gospels. And and this year we're moving through the Gospel of John. And each of the Gospels obviously contains the same main characters and the same basic message, but shot at from a slightly different angle. And John's is the last of the Gospels. And, And the specific theme most scholars will say of John's Gospel is given for us near the end of his Gospel in John 20 where he writes... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, what what John, the gospel writer, is saying here is there's lots of other stuff. There's lots of other details that I could have included. There's lots of other miracles Jesus did. There's lots of other important conversations that he held. I didn't include all of those because it would have filled all the books in the entire world. I've reduced it down to just this. And I have a specific purpose for you reading specifically this. It's that you may see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God and true God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. In other words, that you would believe the truth about him and therefore enter into the life that really is life, the abundant life that God has redeemed us for. Believe and live. That's our basic theme for John's gospel. 
And the gospel is essentially constructed on seven basic testimonies that we see throughout. Now, this is, this is one way to structure it, but you have the, the testimony, the clear testimony that Jesus is God given by John the Baptist. You have it given by Nathaniel. You have it given by Peter. You have it given by a blind man who Jesus heals. You have it given by Martha, the sister of Lazarus at Lazarus' funeral in John 11. You have it given by Doubting Thomas. And then you have a testimony, certainly by Jesus himself, on several occasions. Each one, a clear testimony with the intent that people would see that he is God and the Savior of the entire world. And the first of those testimonies is John the Baptist, who also, in many ways, is like a prototype of discipleship. Somebody who studies God's word faithfully, and proclaims it fearlessly and lives their life, life according to it uh, consistently. That's the discipleship concept, the biblical discipleship concept, and John does that about as well as any other uh, human being. He's not only the prototype of discipleship, though, he's like the prototype of preaching. And here, this phrase that he gives you is, for me, this has come to be over the years the quintessential statement about Christian preaching. This is the statement that I want you to hold me against. And if I fall out of line with this statement, then you can say, Pastor, you're not really doing your job. Look at what he says. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You could, I I thought about the whole message tonight, just be peeling this apart and unpacking that because there's so much in there. Look, investigate intently at, at Christ as the Lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice who primarily comes to the earth to do what? To take away the sins of who? Just me? The people who are proportionately better? No, the sins of the entire world. And God cares about the whole world, so we should care about the whole world too. It's all right in there in his preaching. And I'll tell you what, one of the reasons it's a template for preaching is you could go into literally thousands of different Christian churches around the country this weekend And you could probably, in all honesty, hear um, pieces of advice that are five uh, points, five steps on being a better spouse and five steps on being a better parent and five steps on improving your communication and five steps on overcoming the personal obstacles that you face in your life and five steps on becoming a bridge builder that helps uh, heal society. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not trying to knock any of that because those are very good, very important implications and applications of the gospel. What they are not, however, is the gospel. Um, In other words, if what messaging becomes from Christian leaders is largely how you improve yourself, self-improvement, Americans love that. If that's primarily the message that you hear, it's really all about becoming a bigger self and a better self. And that's not the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the guy who gives us the statement, he must become greater and I must become less. In other words, the Christian preaching message is not about you becoming better. It's not about you becoming greater. It's about you forgetting you and losing you and getting lost in Jesus Christ. See, it's it's subtle, but it is very different. And how do you do that? Well, you look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the key step. John the Baptist did that better than anybody else, and that's why he became the greatest who was ever born amongst women. I'll unpack that a little bit, and we're going to do it under these two statements. We're going to look at a correct perception of self, which I see in verses 19 through 28, and then in verses 29 through 34, we're going to see the correct perception of Christ. 
Okay, correct perception of self, correct perception of Christ. First of all, the correct perception of self. And a little background just to John the Baptist. He's, you know, if you don't know, he's one of the most important characters in all of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament. He's referenced, I believe it's 89 times in the New Testament. And he conducts all of his ministry, we're told, beyond the river. Beyond the river is a reference to the Jordan River, and beyond the Jordan River means the non-Jerusalem side, so the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's a region that's referred to as Perea, and he's conducting his ministry out in the wilderness, which is a strange backdrop, a strange location if you primarily want to reach a bunch of people. You'd think he'd go into the city to do that. But see what he's doing is the wilderness serves as like a visual symbolic backdrop of the condition of Israel spiritually at that moment. It's a wasteland. And he wants that imagery clearly portrayed. And people, he's got such a message that people are coming out in droves out into the countryside to come and listen and, and see what's going on with him. And he's not, you know what, he's, he's born to a priest. His dad is Zechariah who works at the temple, but he's not really a priest even though he's in the line of the priest. And he's not really a rabbi because, you know, he hasn't gone through any of the proper channels of accreditation in order to become a rabbi. In order to truly be a rabbi, you have to study under another qualified, credible rabbi, and they eventually release you out to be a leader and spiritual guide amongst other people. John the Baptist has not done any of that. And so he has, he's, he's totally circumvented the entire religious establishment along the way, and he's upsetting the flow of society. And yet he's clearly very impactful and very powerful in his messaging. And everybody can see that because they're all going out to see him. He's destroying um, like the social order of the religious establishment. And therefore, uh, the religious leaders, the, the Jewish leaders, send a contingent of priests and Levites and Pharisees, who by the way are a group of people that they didn't often get along. They were often at odds with one another. But in John the Baptist and eventually in Jesus, they find a common enemy. And so that's the only thing that can like help them get along. And they send a contingent to go and visit John the Baptist. And the basic message is this. Who are you? We can tell there's something special about you. You clearly are affected, uh, effective. You've clearly captured the imagination of all the people that they're all making these pilgrimages out into the wilderness in order to listen to you. But who are you? And they follow that up with, are you the promised Messiah? You know, you haven't done the signs and wonders that were promised with the Messiah, but you, clearly something's going on here. Are you the Messiah? Are you the second coming of Elijah? And that whole deal is uh, the Jews had in their minds, uh, going back to Malachi, there's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 that says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the coming of the end of the world, Elijah is going to come back uh, to usher all things, all last things in. And interestingly enough, the angel, when the angel talks to Zechariah before John the Baptist's birth, says, this guy is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And later on in his ministry, Jesus is going to say, uh, Elijah has come back to you, at least the ministry of Elijah, in the person of John the Baptist. So, yes, he conducts a ministry like John the Baptist, but when he's asked if he is, uh, John the Baptist is Elijah, he says, no, I am not Elijah reincarnate. Say, okay, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And what they mean by that is back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, after the Exodus, he says, eventually from amongst your own people, one will arise who is a greater deliverer and a greater prophet than I am. 
and we would come to find out this is going to be the Messiah, but the Jew, in Jewish lore, in the Jewish mind, there was always, maybe there's this some great prophet who's coming. John the Baptist says, I'm not that either. Okay, well, who are you? You know, uh, clearly you're unique, clearly you're something special, but if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not this great prophet we've been expecting, who are you? And his response is simply, I'm the voice. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. And if you don't know, that is a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's a very humble way of looking at himself. John the Baptist says, I'm, what am I? I'm a voice. And honestly, this is a really good way for you as a Christian to summarize your own life. What is my purpose in this world? It's to speak to the goodness of God. I'm a voice. Whether life is going great or life is going miserably, I have the promises to speak to the goodness of God that exists in my life. I, as a voice, can raise the name of Jesus Christ. That's John the Baptist's mission. Very humble. In fact, he says something even more humble than this. It's interesting. He says, a couple of verses later, this coming guy, this Messiah, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, what does that mean? So every society has different conventions, so you can figure out pretty easily who's a person of prominence and who's a person of insignificance. Where do you rank in society? And in Jewish culture, it was largely based on what happened to your feet, which sounds very weird. We've talked about this briefly before, but remember, in ancient society, the primary means of travel is by foot. And so as stinky and disgusting and smelly and craggly and crusty and calloused as feet are today, they were 10 times grosser uh, in the ancient world where people are just walking on them openly all the time. And what, so people were constantly in need of their feet being washed, uh, but who was going to do it? And they actually had, it was such a big part of Jewish life that they actually had laws, you know, like legislating who could touch your feet and what they were allowed to do. And uh, so, for instance, rabbis were not allowed to abuse their power and force their disciples to get down and wash their feet. But you could have a household servant, like a slave, wash your feet. And so what's John the Baptist saying when he says, I'm not even worthy to get down and scrub the feet of this guy? What's he saying? I'm lower than a slave. I'm worse than a slave when it comes to this guy. Now, here's my question for you. When, it, when we talk about perception of self, is, isn't that like psychologically unhealthy to consider yourself that lowly? Like isn't that a lack of self-esteem? Isn't that a lack of self-confidence? Isn't that the type of thing that we try to coach out of our children? Well, yes and no. There is a very unhealthy sense of selflessness. It's a selflessness by which you are essentially rejecting yourself and, and like I hate myself and I despise myself and, and principally it's a devaluing of self. And that's incredibly unhealthy, biblically and psychologically. On the other hand, there is a very healthy sense of selflessness by which you can ultimately sort of forget about yourself. It's not a high view of self. It's not a low view of self. It's a forgetting about oneself. So for example, um, some, of you, some of you have little kids and some of you are in charge of like managing like little three-year-olds right now. And uh, have you ever noticed that little three-year-olds, they have no concern about things like fashion sense? 
Like, so it just it doesn't register, it doesn't matter to them. So like if you had, let's say, a, a three and a half year old girl, and you said, sweetie, you can dress yourself for school today. Uh, what is she gonna do? What's she gonna choose? She's probably gonna choose like, you know, her Disney pajamas, a tutu, some sparkly shoes, and maybe a fun hat. And you'd look at her and you'd say, you know, if an adult dressed, if I dressed like that and went to work, you'd say, well, that person's insane. You know, it, it doesn't match. Um, it's, it's terribly uh, impractical. It's 18 degrees outside. This is not tutu weather. You know, like this is, it doesn't work. But why is it okay for that little girl? Why does she think to do that? Because sometime developmentally between the age of three and four, you develop an understanding of yourself in your social context. Until that moment, you are essentially selfless. And it's actually quite joyful. And it's one of the reasons why if you think back to your age of you know, early childhood, three, four, five, and unless you experience a tremendous amount of trauma during that particular period, most adults look back on that stage of life quite fondly, quite nostalgically. And it's not because everything in your life was absolutely perfect in those moments. It absolutely wasn't. You had less freedom than you have today. Uh, you had just as many, uh, you got sick just as often as you do today, all that kind of stuff. So why do you look upon it joyfully? It's because you didn't have this massive nerve sticking up outside of you that's called the ego or the self that is constantly getting threatened and constantly getting offended and constantly getting hurt through criticism. You were, in a sense, brilliantly selfless. Now, part of the secret of Christian humility, then, is what? It allows you to re-enter into that state of selflessness. Um, how? Well, I'll get to that in just a second, but for right now, what I want you to see is that is what John the Baptist, is, his secret is. That's his, his special ingredient in what he's doing. That's what allows him, he doesn't hate himself, he has a confident lowliness in relationship to Jesus Christ. So, let me show you what this means. The, the correct perception of Christ. John the Baptist does not have a low self-esteem. He does not have a low opinion of himself, despite the, what the things he says here. And how do I know this? I can prove this. People with very low opinions of themselves and low self-esteem are most often very conflict-averse. They're inactive. Uh, they don't take uh, healthy risks because they don't have the confidence to do it. They are not particularly gutsy. That does not describe John the Baptist. Um, you know how John the Baptist dies? Beheaded. You know why he gets beheaded? Because he stands up to the ruler, the tetrarch of his region in Perea, a guy named Herod Antipas, because this Herod had stolen his brother's wife and that was against the Jewish law. And John the Baptist says, you cannot lead these people, God's people historically, and conduct your life in this kind of way. In other words, he calls them to repentance. And I'll tell you what, as somebody who has a minister, part of my job, and I get this, is to, in some kind of healthy and constructive way, regularly call people to repentance. It takes guts particularly in a society where there says there's nothing universally right or wrong anymore. It takes guts to call somebody to repentance. And when you know it's going to cost you your head, it takes a lot of guts. And yet John the Baptist does it. And he does it fearlessly. He is, he does not, he's not a coward. He does not have a low opinion of himself. John the Baptist has a selflessness that somehow makes him both more humble and more bold. How does he get it? Well, this lesson says it right here. Here's the secret. The next day, Jesus approaches. 
And John the Baptist says, there, that's why. It's, it's about him. I am who I am because of him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's this Jewish contingent that had come out asking him who he is. He says who he is, particularly in relation to who God is. And he says, the secret to it all is this guy, the Lamb of God. My ministry is about him. My entire life is wrapped up in him. And the reason I've been allowed to forget about myself and stop worrying so much about myself is because of him. Because he's the Lamb of God. Well, what's a, what's a Lamb of God? See, John the Baptist was the first person in human history to ever fully put this together. The Lamb of God, if you look through the Old Testament, it's like the, a major theme. Like, so a couple months ago, we looked at the story of Abraham and Isaac, and God commands Abraham to sacrifice his only dearly loved son, Isaac, and go up Mount Moriah, and they walk up together, and Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice, and they have everything necessary. And Isaac, the son, says, but father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. In other words, if God would give us a lamb, we wouldn't have to suffer. And then a couple hundred years later, you know what happens? It's the start of the exodus and it's the last of the plagues in Egypt and Moses has demanded that let my people go, uh, God's message to Pharaoh. And the last of the plagues is the, the angel of death is going to come down and slaughter the firstborn son in all of Egypt for the wickedness and rebellion against God. But there is a ray of hope, there is grace because God has given a message to Moses to share with the people that if you take an unblemished sacrificial lamb and you take its blood and you smear it over the doorframe of your home, when the angel, of the, the angel of death comes, that angel will pass over the home of everyone who is guarded by the blood of an unblemished lamb. And every year after this, God's people always celebrate the Passover as like the culmination meal of their year. And literally every day they sacrifice two lambs as a constant reminder for the need of sacrificial lamb in their lives. And all of the prophets are constantly pointing to the sacrificial lamb that is to come. And Isaiah in the suffering servant chapter of Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb before shearers is silent, this Messiah is not going to open his mouth. In other words, the Messiah's role moving forward, the Messiah is going to function like a voluntary sacrificial lamb. All human history and every day of activity in the history of God's people has all built up unto this one very specific moment. And John the Baptist, on the day Jesus shows up, says, and we're here. Everything in human history has come to this moment. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, you know what the interesting thing is? So that Lamb of God, that had never been, that label was never applied to a human being. It was always referred to as a lamb. It had never been put on a human until this moment. And the interesting thing about that is how does a lamb, a lamb doesn't, generally speaking, just trot itself up onto the, the altar to be sacrificed. Somebody has to present the lamb. Somebody's got to bring forth the lamb. The Israelites, on behalf of their own sins, have to bring the lamb for the sacrifice. But wait a second. If this guy who's coming is the, is the lamb, who's he being presented by? He's God's lamb. Well, God doesn't have any sins, so why does he need to make a sacrifice for the sins? He's not making a sacrifice for himself. He's making a sacrifice on behalf of the world that he so dearly loves. And when John the Baptist put that all together and figured that out for the first time amongst human beings, 
That's the secret. That's the secret to becoming the greatest person according to Jesus in world history. Look at how humble he is. Look at how bold he is. By the way, if you're going to become a redemptive force in the world, you have to have both. Most of us by disposition are either kind of lowly or kind of full of ourselves. If you're humble but you're never bold, you're going to be very sweet, you're going to be very agreeable, lots of people will like you and you never accomplish anything. On the other hand, if you're bold but you're not humble, you'll accomplish all sorts of stuff but you're going to run over people along the way. And you will crush people because they are merely objects for you to attain your goals. And so you might accomplish good things for you, but you're not a redemptive force for anybody else. If you are going to be God's redemptive force in hand in the world today, you have to be both humble and bold. And John the Baptist has got both. Just look at him. Just look at him. Does he glorify God? I would say so. Eventually in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those who are born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good endorsement. In all of human history, there has never lived, save Jesus himself, somebody who was bigger or better than John the Baptist. Yes, he's glorifying God. Does he make an impact? Well, here we are studying him 2,000 years later. There were millions of people. The Roman Empire was full of itself. There are millions of people in the Roman Empire who were trying to carve out a legacy for themselves and you don't know the names of more than three or four of them. In a thousand years from now, people might know the names of maybe one or two of them, but I guarantee they'll still be studying John the Baptist. What's the point? The moral is to the degree that you behold the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, you too can leave a godly legacy. If you want to become the, the second, or that's already taken, the third greatest person in all of human history, how does it happen? It comes to the degree that you behold the lamb who was slain for the sins of the entire world. That's the secret. Now, just two more minutes. I want to tease out an implication of this. There are basically, in human personality development, there are basically two approaches to forming a sense of self. Three if you're Christian. Two, in the, in the general secular world. You can either be driven by everybody else's opinion of you and be driven by the assessments and driven by the expectations of, of other people. And, and all of us go through this at some point in time. And so you're driven by the expectations of your parents or by the expectations of your boss or the expectation of your culture or the expectation of your peer group. And virtually every counselor, secular or otherwise, will tell you that is terribly unhealthy to give somebody else that much power, to give somebody else the ability to name you in that way, that is incredibly unhealthy. Um, it's incredibly vulnerable. And so what's the, op the other you know, solution of that? Either uh, you can let somebody else direct the purpose and name you in your life, but what a counselor would say is don't worry so much what other people think of you. The only thing that really matters is what do you think of you? Well, that presents some very obvious problems too. What happens if I don't all, always think very highly of myself? And for that matter, the problem, one of the problems, the obvious problems, is that generally speaking, only people with high standards really accomplish a whole lot. And so I'm either going to be fairly ineffective in what I do, or I'm going to have incredibly high standards, maybe accomplish a lot, but people with incredibly high standards are often completely down on themselves and perpetually feeling like failures. So I can either have very low standards, not accomplish a whole lot and despair over how little I've done, or can I can have incredibly high standards, never perfectly meet them, 
uh, and constantly feel like a failure and walk around with that chip on my shoulder, which actually makes me fairly dangerous to the rest of humanity as well. I mean, you look at serial killers throughout history, the problem is not that they have low self-esteem. The problem is that they have this thing called hubris, which is an inflated sense of self. They don't think too little of themselves. They think way too much of themselves, and that makes them a very big danger to society. If you have too low a sense of self, it's dangerous. If you have too high a view of self, it's dangerous. What if you could lose the sense of self? That's the goal. That's what Jesus allows you to do. The third available option is that you are driven by what God thinks of you through Jesus Christ. It is a repentance of self-centeredness and a moving towards the freedom and the beauty that comes in Christ-centeredness. Let me just show you what this looks like real quick. It, logically, if Jesus is at the center of your life, what does that mean? It means that my sins are completely taken away because after all, he came to earth to be what? the sacrificial lamb of God. And if that's the case, if Jesus is at the center, I don't have to live in regret over all the past mistakes that I've made. Do you think there's anybody out there who's living in misery because of past regrets? Of course there is. If Jesus is at the center of my life, then he becomes my righteousness, which means not only my rightness with God, but my rightness with myself. And so the pursuit of accomplishments and titles and uh, trophies doesn't run my life. And if Jesus is at the center of my life, then God accepts me. He, God himself accepts me. So what difference does it make if somebody else criticizes me or has a low opinion of me? And for that matter, if God has emboldened me with that kind of acceptance, I can be empowered to say anything to anyone, just like John the Baptist was. And if Jesus is at the center of my life, then I'm absolutely 100% assured of my future, so I'm not afraid to die, which has been one of the secret ingredients uh, throughout the history of the Christian church and its effectiveness, whether it was the early Christians who were tossed to the lions or it was the Christians who stayed and took care of the sick while the secular world was running up to the hills during the first and second great plagues in the Roman Empire or it was the Christians who overturned the system during the Reformation or it's the countless Christians around the world today who continue to face oppression because they are simply bearing the name of Jesus Christ boldly. They're doing it because they're not afraid to die because they know what's on the other side of the curtain. And if Jesus Christ is at the center of my life, I become generous because his generosity is my insurance. And if Jesus Christ is at the center of my life, I become likably humble because my life is no longer about me. It's about him who redeemed me, who promises to take care of me, which frees me to love and serve other people ahead of myself. How much joy could come into your life if you'd simply forget about yourself? If you stopped being the center and he became the center. Jesus becomes the center more and more when I behold the lamb who was slain, who takes away the sins of the world, including mine. It's humility and it's confidence. It's all in there. It all works and John the Baptist is proof that it works. He became the greatest among humans precisely because he grasped the greatness of Jesus better than anybody else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we must become less in our own lives and you must become more. The joy we would know, the redemptive force we would be if this would happen. Help us, Lamb of God, to the glory of your name. Amen.